We are in Matthew chapter 20. Let's open up there. Matthew chapter 20. We will finish chapter 20 this morning. Not that that necessarily matters, but we are on schedule to finish the book of Matthew at the end of this year, and that'll be two years that we spent in the book of Matthew. Yeah. Uh, The title of this message is The Cross-Shaped Life. We're going to start reading together in verse 17. I'm reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. And it says in Matthew 20, verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. So Jesus called them all together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your wonderful word that is before us this morning. And there's so much here, Lord. There's good and wonderful and challenging. And I think as we read it, all of our hearts are pricked in different ways. So, so we ask that that attentiveness would continue, that you would have our attention now, Lord, our full attention. We can confess our wandering minds and our distracted hearts, but we would ask for the help of the Holy Spirit now who would bring us into full focus of God's holy word and the holy work that you want to do in us, God. Help me, please, Lord, by grace and for your glory to be a conduit of that and not a hindrance to that. Give us understanding of what the text says that we might have a great understanding of who Christ is and his great love for us and the work of the cross and his glory in our world and in our lives. 
We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. If you think about this text and maybe how it relates to our culture, our society, and sort of how we function, how we approach life in America, we, we might come up with these three common phrases or sayings that sort of sum up the American radical Western individual, as sociologists call it, perspective on success and prominence, which the text clearly touches on. We might all think of phrases like this. In our culture, it is survival of the fittest. You've heard that one, and that's not only a Darwinian theory, that is also a social theory. We might also think about that phrase or that idea of climbing the corporate ladder. And my favorite, it's not what you know, it's who you know. All of those things have greatly uh, informed us, formed us as a culture, right? Survival of the fittest, socially speaking, climbing the corporate ladder. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And we would generally agree as a culture here in the West that if you want to succeed and if you want to have power and authority and influence, and honestly, who doesn't? If you want to succeed and have power and authority and influence, then you need to be stronger than the competition, and it's always a competition. You need to do anything that you can to climb at any cost, no matter who you got to push down. And it always helps to have connections. And surprisingly, it wasn't that different in this first century Jewish culture. It wasn't that different at all. I mean, I think that those sentiments are pretty human as far as our fallen humanness. In fact, we've seen in the gospel accounts that the disciples often argued or competed around the idea of which one of them was greatest. Not at fishing or farming or any of the other stuff they did, but the greatest in the kingdom. And they were new Jesus followers and they're already fighting it out like, which one of us is the greatest? They even asked Jesus that question explicitly in Matthew 18, 1. Who's the greatest in the kingdom among us, Jesus? So they kind of had that same mindset that there was some sort of upward mobility socially that they had to be mindful of. There was this desire to succeed and have authority and power and influence. It's surprising that we see it in their culture because their culture was, even though there's a commonality there, radically different than ours. Again, sociologists call us as a culture radical Western individualists. Our main paradigm or the main way through which we think about stuff is this question, what is best for me and how can I advance my agenda? We're not usually in our culture concerned about the whole or some broader community, or the family unit, and how it might affect them, and what they might want, and how it affects the family name. It's about us, and what we want, and how it affects us, and our name. That is who we are. And they were not that culture, even though we see some of that humanness there. They were a communal culture. They were a familial, a familial, weird word. They were a family-oriented culture. Their culture had deeply ingrained in them to be concerned about how their decisions affected the community and most importantly, their family. They were deeply concerned by that. That had deeply formed them and informed them. 
But in some ways here, that family orientation, as we see this going on with James and John, those are the ones who are the sons of Zebedee. It's their mom who came to Jesus. Jesus responds to them, James and John. In some way, that idea, this family orientation, might be greatly affecting their ambitions here or the way that they play out. Their mom comes to Jesus and she asks that bold question. It's interesting, we learn when we look at other gospel texts, that their mom, though she's unnamed here, was actually named Salome. We see that in Matthew 27 and in Mark 15. And we also find out from John chapter 19 that she was, interestingly enough, Jesus' earthly mother's sister. Hmm. So she is Jesus' earthly auntie, and James and John are his earthly cousins. Maybe it is about who you know. I mean, yeah, dear, my, my cousin is Jesus. Hey, Jesus, he's my nephew. Maybe it is about who you know. And maybe it was about the strongest or the fittest in that culture. From what we know, J- James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they certainly fit that description. These were gnarly guys. About this same time, In the narrative, Jesus' journey to the cross in Jerusalem, we learn from Luke chapter 9 that when they were going to Jerusalem this one time, Jesus sent some of the boys ahead to prepare a place for his tribe in a uh, village there. And it was a village of the Samaritans. And Samaritans did not like the Jews. So when they went and said, hey, we got, you know, 13 Jews coming here. We need a place to stay. The Samaritans were like, no way. And they went back and reported that to Jesus And we learn in Luke chapter 9 that the sons of Zebedee, James and John, actually said to Jesus when they heard that, Jesus, would you like us to call down fire from heaven to consume the people in that village? That's a crazy thing to say. They had a little bit of background and context because of some things Elijah did, but that's a crazy thing to say. That's like a pretty bold, powerful, power-oriented, survival of the fittest sort of statement. So maybe we're not that surprised when we see them doing this. In fact, we might just, if we were there, do the same sort of thing. They are just trying to climb the ladder. And so in verse 21, she said to Jesus explicitly, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. Jesus had already promised the disciples that in the kingdom, eschatologically speaking, in the final age, they would have these sort of throne positions where they helped govern over the nation of Israel. But these guys are not happy with little thrones. They want a little bigger of thrones. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, and we we know you're going to be the king, but what about the right-hand position and the left-hand position? The number one and the number two guy, let it be my sons, the mom says. And why not send your mom for that? Even Jesus can't resist a mom, I assume. But the tension that sits behind that question and stands behind this text is that the mom and the boys, who are really the issue, were failing to understand the way of Jesus. They'd been with him for almost three years at this point. They should have been getting a clue, but they were missing the way or the essence of Jesus and what it meant for them. So it's really strategic to help us get it when the Holy Spirit connects this text or starts this 
little story section here with what he started with, which is Jesus talking about the cross. Let's look again at verses 17 through 19. Now, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. Pause right there. That's supposed to clue us in that like he's crossbound. This is a big shift. He's not just doing stuff in Galilee anymore. He has like set his face like flint resolutely for Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, this is not the first time, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that is the religious leaders, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. But on the third day, he will rise to life. Yeah, 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 but what about this promotion? I mean, that's what they did right there. It is astounding that they said that on the heels of that. Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested, mocked, beaten, and crucified. That Crucified. We don't have a clear image of that, but they had a clear image of that. That was, that was the death sentence of the first century Israel at that time, the Roman Empire. It was horrific and bloody and gory and torturous. I'm going to be mocked and beaten and crucified in Jerusalem. Yeah, but what about this promotion? That's astounding. Now, we ought not to be too hard on the disciples because we know it's not the first time that Jesus told them about the cross. He's told them several times and we know that they just weren't getting it and they hadn't seen it yet. I mean, in a little while they would see it and they'd see the resurrection and they would see things differently. They would get it. But you know what? We ought to get it now because we have seen it and we've seen the resurrection And we should see things differently in the shadow or the light, however you want to say it, of the cross of Christ. Not not to be too hard on them. They didn't get it. They would later. But we need to get this thing. And I think surprisingly, that we live in the shadow of the cross and in the light of the cross and we have the full picture and the full revelation of Scripture, I think surprisingly sometimes we do not live in light of the cross. We still ask questions like, yeah, yeah, but what about that promotion? I'm not not talking about necessarily vocationally oriented stuff. I'm talking about self-oriented stuff. That's what's going on here. right? So we live in the shadow, in the light, in the clear perspective of the cross, and yet we are so often so slow to forgive. That's a weird thing in the shadow of the cross. If Jesus were here and he said to us at that time, here's what I'm going to do on the cross for you, and we said, yeah, but I'm not going to forgive that guy. That would be a strange thing to say in the shadow of the cross. We live in the light and the shadow and the full picture of the cross, and yet we often demand justice rather than loving mercy. We live in the shadow of the light with a full picture of the cross where Christ was judged for us and yet we so often judge one another harshly. We live in the shadow and the light and the full picture of the cross 
And yet we'll so often push others down to get ourselves up or to make a simple comparison of how we might look better when we could point out how people don't look so good. We often grab for power and we think about our selfish self-promotions in light of the cross. And that ought to, in light of the text, be a strange thing. If there were observers, as we're observing poor James and John and Salome in this text, and they saw us acting in those ways, we might never verbalize them, but acting in those ways, they might want to say, that's a strange thing. Because you talk about survival of the strongest, you talk about climbing the ladder, you talk about it's not what you know, but who you know. But wasn't Jesus the absolute strongest, fittest, and greatest, and he became weak for you? Wasn't Jesus exalted at the very top of the ladder in glory as the second person of the Trinity and he became lowly for us? And you talk about connected. Isn't he one with the Father for all of eternity and yet on the cross he was alienated for us by taking on our sins? So it's often strange the way that we live dissonantly in light with the full picture of the cross. And in light and in the shadow of and with the full picture of the cross, everything that follows in our Christian lives is meant then to be cross-shaped or formed by the cross or cruciformed is a word that people use. Shaped like a cross. Our lives are meant to be in the shadow of and light of with a full picture of shaped like the cross and the implications thereof of Christ. That's why the text is framed at the beginning with Jesus talking about the cross. And since Jesus, the fittest, highest, and most connected, became weak and lowly and forsaken for us, then we can, with the help of the Holy Spirit, approach life together differently. I think we looked at this text recently, but it bears another look. Philippians chapter 2 speaks about these very things. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not look into your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Okay, here's going to... Some cruciform stuff here. Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The fittest one became weak on our behalf. The exalted one came to a low place for us. The ultimately connected one was willing to be alienated on the cross that we might be reconciled to God. And in our faith in Christ, we are delivered from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the beloved son who went to the cross for us. And so we now are members of a kingdom that has a different set of values. Values that are cross-shaped, formed by the cross. And Jesus said some sort of surprising things in the text, maybe not surprising, I don't know. 
He said some things in the text in light of that. He says in verse 22 to them, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Pause right there for a moment. Cup and biblical uh, understanding means, in essence, one's destiny in light of God. So sometimes God would give people a, a cup of blessing and salvation. Sometimes he would give them a, a, a cup of, of judgment and, and destruction. And it was often spoken of in, 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 the, in the future tense. It's like when Jesus said in the garden, Gethsemane, Father, let this cup pass before me, this destiny, this fate, the way that this is going. And Jesus says to them, the way that I'm going, are you able to drink from that cup? Because where is he going? To the cross. It's the first thing he asks them in light of their ambition. Okay? Okay, boys, I hear what you're saying. Can, Can you go the way that I'm going? Can you drink from that cup? And they say to him, we can. They don't know. (laughs) They'll know in a few days after the cross. After after 28, they'll get it. Jesus says to them, you will actually drink from my cup. He says to them, there is a destiny for you in me under my kingship. There is something in the future that will be cross-shaped. I don't know, let's put it in crass terms. I, I, I think he's saying to them, there is some suffering on the road of following me for you. And then interestingly, he says, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. He teaches us a few things there about life in the kingdom, having to do with the sovereignty of God, suffering and following Jesus, and serving Jesus. He says, those, those places, those things that you're looking for, listen, there's a higher power than you. He, he appeals to the Father. The Father is sovereign in those things. It's not merely about survival of the fittest. It's not merely about who can climb up the ladder. Now, we might think about that in terms of like kingdom or church leadership, or we can just think about that in terms of our lives because as Christians, we're all other under King Jesus. And King Jesus says, listen, Here's what the Bible has always taught us. God is sovereign. And he's sovereign even over our lives. And so in your ambition, James and John, you need to appeal to the one who is sovereign. You are not, I'm sorry, the captain of your own destiny. It's not dependent upon your strength or your gifts or your wherewithal or the way that you can push people down and get up. You have to appeal to the Father's loving sovereignty. He reminds us about sovereignty. He reminds us about suffering. You know, they thought, as we often thought, well, this is just an upwardly mobile thing, right? They thought up and up. They're like the Jeffersons, moving on up. You know that show? Remember that? There you go. Fun rate. Do it. Okay. Fun rate knows that one. Um, They're like the Jeffersons. They thought, you know, just going up, just going up. And he says, listen, a cross-shaped life is not merely up and up. It has at the end of it ultimate exaltation with Jesus and glory forever under his kingship. But on the road to glory in the kingdom is the cross. And he says to them, you know, he's not saying to them, you guys are going to go to crosses, but he did say to them earlier on, you should think about picking up your crosses when you're following me because your life is inevitably going to be cross-shaped at one point or another if you're actually following me. It's just hard truth. And then about service, 
you know, he's saying to them, look, it's not about leveraging connections. He says to them in verse 26. Or, well, we'll start in verse 24. When the ten heard this, they were indignant with the other two brothers. Now, pause right there for a second. Knowing the ten and knowing what we know from the gospel accounts, they're not indignant or, or perturbed and annoyed and angry with the brothers because they're trying to like exalt themselves and they're like, dude, you guys should be humble. They're indignant because they did it first. And they, honestly, they, they had really good connections. They were cousins with Jesus, earthly speaking. So they're like, ah, oh. can you imagine Peter? Peter's like, oh, I hate those guys. We know that that's sort of the attitude going on there because Jesus calls them all together and he says to them all, look guys, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Pause right there. He says, look guys, we all know the way that it works in the world. And he's not necessarily passing a, a value judgment in that moment on the way that it works in the world. He's not necessarily in that moment looking to destroy the way that the world functioned. He's just saying, look, we all know that this is the paradigm that you're coming from. This is, this is the way that life works. We know, I know that's the, uh, that's the way it is in your fishing jobs. I know, Matthew, that's the way it is for you when you're collecting taxes. We know, guys, this is the way it works. But I just want to tell you something a little bit different. So he says to them in verse 26, not so with you. Right, there's the clue. I'm calling you to a different way. As members of a different kingdom. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. That's hard for them to wrap their minds around there. They're coming from a place of arguing who is the greatest. We already demonstrated they're coming from a place of like looking for upward mobility and connection and opportunity, as we all are. So those words are always hard words. I think sometimes, sometimes what, what, what we try to do in the Christian community is just then make that about church. Okay, well, Jesus was just talking about two hours on Sunday morning then, right? So we can just come to church and like I could serve in the coffee ministry or I could do some food or I could serve the kids. And I'm like, I'm like totally serving there. But then like, dude, I got a life to live. So on Monday, it's about who I know and the ladders that I could climb and the ways that I could advance. I think that's what we often do with that. But we don't get that from Scripture. We don't get this compartment. Pum, com, <laughs> comparta, when I was a younger preacher, I could say words. A compartmentalization of life given to us in Scripture, nor do we get the opportunity for this bifurcation. Life in the kingdom and life under the king means that what happens Monday is just as sacred as what happens on Sunday. All of it is meant to be life lived toward God. Now there's real tension in trying to live that kingdom ideal out in the real world. I think we get it in servant leadership within the church. We expect it from our leaders. Sorry, not that good at it. I think we get it in church life and service and even church relationships. But it can be challenging to live out in the world. So we have to remember, we have to remember in all of that. Because even in the church, you know, we see posturing and positions, positioning and like looking for authority and influence. Let's be honest. So we, we have to at this juncture remind ourselves of what Jesus reminded them of. The reason, the reason, the reason that they should ever even consider being that way. Being willing to serve. 
We already saw it explained well in Philippians. Jesus says it succinctly in verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus holds himself up as the example, but not merely an example. The reality of the upside down nature of the kingdom, that the fittest one became weak, that the exalted one went low, that the connected one was alienated. And he says, so just as I, your leader, your king, your savior, the one who inaugurates and brings and heads up this kingdom, have served you, by going to the cross. Because of that cross, then your life ought to be this tone or have this tone and tenor of service. It's cross-formed. The cross forms that, it informs that, and then at a juncture like this on a Sunday morning with a sermon like this, we need to remember that it reforms that. The cross forms our mindsets, it, it informs, and it has to reform. Reform. That's part of the wonderful thing about bringing ourselves under the word of God is we have opportunities to reform. That's part of what a Sunday is. What a bummer if you come to Sunday and you just have some feel-good stuff, you worship, that's totally cool, but you come week after week, week after week, and you never change or are changed by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the Holy God, through the Holy Word, for the Holy God, in your holy little life. Like today's an opportunity to be reformed in a cruciform way. So asking questions about how does my life and the whole of it, because it all belongs to King Jesus, how does it take on the tone and the tenor of the cross? Is it appealing to sovereignty? Because Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane where he said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Is it accepting and having a willingness to suffer for the purposes and the causes and the glory of Jesus? And is it service-oriented? And again, Jesus acknowledges how the real world works. Verse 25 again, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And so I I, I think that we need to be honest about that, like tension that we feel then as we try to live in the world but not be of the world. Right? That's, That's the hard part. Ephesians chapter 5 Paul would write and say, Beloved, as beloved children of God, therefore be imitators of God. I I think that starts where Jesus started by appealing to sovereignty. By understanding that the places and the spaces where God puts us in this life are not meant to form our identities, they're meant to create opportunities. Like maybe Jesus has given you awesome advancement in the business world or the academic world or the surfing world or whatever world you're in. And those are are good. You have a king who is good, who's doing good things in your life. But I think we err when we think that those things now should form our identity when in truth our identity is in Christ and those are meant to be opportunities for the glory of Christ. First Peter, 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 Peter. I'm getting the funniest thing in my old age. Peter, who was there this day, would go on to write this later on. Speaking on behalf of God here. But you are not like that. 
for you are chosen people. You are royal priests. Talking about the church here, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, right, because of this new identity, you can show others the goodness of God. There's the opportunity. Because he called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Wonderful light. The shadow, the light, the full picture of the cross. Once you had no identity as a people, right? We thought we did. We tried to form identity on all these other things that were false identities and let us down until we came to faith in Christ and we became identified with him and we are beloved daughters and sons of God. But once you had no identity as people, now you are God's people. Once you receive no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. So, dear friends, I warn you, here's attention, as temporary residents and foreigners, pause right there for a moment, give me your attention. That's part of the self-understanding of our identity of being in the world but not of the world. This world is not our home, right? There's, There's a greater kingdom, there's a greater hope, there's a greater future, there's a greater reality that we're part of that is both already present now and not yet coming soon. So we're temporary residents and foreigners. You know that old saying, when in Rome, do as Romans do, but that, that, that's, that doesn't work here. <laughs> we are citizens of heaven, the beloved of God in Christ Jesus. The Bible never says, but in the world, do as the world does. It says, no, you, you got to realize, dude, that you're still a citizen of heaven, even though you're sojourning in this world. So you got to interact with it, touch it, hold it, let it form you a little differently. So I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Okay, here's real life. Who's your neighbor? It might might be the person that lives next door to you. It might be the person that works next door to you. The people that you frequent with. Be careful, give some thought to, some intentionality to living properly as a citizen of heaven among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Keep it right there, Jen. Go back one, please. Thank you. Your honorable behavior, I I think that isn't just... I think it connects to the ideas that Jesus was proposing in the text of appealing to the sovereignty of God, right? Living in this world as though we have... Uh, another power in our lives, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus, and God the Father. I think that applies to that like servanthood thing, that there's this difference in our life that isn't only me-oriented, isn't, isn't ultimately me-oriented, isn't radically I and ego-oriented. Sovereignty, service. I think behavior could be tied up in the fact that when we suffer, we have the hope and the possibility of suffering differently because Jesus has conquered sin, death, and the devil and is coming again to set everything right. I don't think it's merely moral behavior, but it has to do with this tone and this essence of our lives. It's both and. And Then he goes on to say, it's God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. You know, that, that's, that was true when Peter wrote that in the first century, and that's true in our century today. Like, people make foolish accusations against Christians. I mean, we are becoming less and less popular in this nation. 
right? If you like read the news, if you watch any news other than Fox News, you know like you're not in the in crowd (laughs) if you're a Christian. So this is real. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Called to live differently in the world. And again, because I keep bringing up like Monday morning in the workplace, we, we might sort of couch it in this question. Well, what if your boss found out you were a Christian? Hopefully he doesn't have to find out. He already knows. <laughs> or she. And what if she came to you and asked you this question? Listen, I, I know you're a Christian. How can I expect your work to be different in light of your faith? And then how would we answer that? The text is telling us, helping us to think through the fact that there, there, there should be an answer for that with some tangibilities about the sovereignty of God and the willingness to serve other people, the way that we go through hardships, the way that we approach ladders and who's the greatest and who you know. How can I expect your work to be different in light of your faith? Would be a fair question. When we ask that, Matthew 5, 16 comes to mind where Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He reminds us that this whole thing, this life that we've been given is bigger than ourselves. That we actually exist for God's glory. And our lives are meant to bring God glory. And the way to glorifying God is always headed for the cross. And disturbingly, over and over again. (laughs) In Christian life, the cross always lies there before us. There's always a call to pick up our cross and deny ourselves and follow Jesus. And there's always a temptation like go around the cross. Right? Remember when Peter in Matthew 16, Jesus did that thing again. He described to him like, look, we're going to the cross. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Remember that? And so, Lord, may it never be. I think often in our lives, like we're confronted with the reality of self-denial and self-sacrifice and living for God's glory and not our own and how that affects the whole of our lives. And we often say, oh, can't we just skip that cross part at least this time? And so Matthew attaches this little story of the blind man right on the end of this story of James and John so that we can see an example of Jesus playing some of this stuff out for us. So in verse 29, it says, As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? Second time in the text, he's asked that question, huh? Two different guys. Same question. James and John, what do you want me to do for you? And and your mama, what do you want me to do for you? Blind guys, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their fight, sight, excuse me, and they followed him. A couple things that we could glean from that. Number one, toward others. Number two, toward self. Number one, Jesus stopped for and had compassion on the ones the world wanted to ignore. And that's cruciform. 
That's cross-shaped life. The people that would usually get pushed down the ladder or never have the opportunity to even get to the ladder, those who are fully disenfranchised and unconnected, those who are not the fittest, not the greatest, not the strongest, those whom the world would often push aside, Jesus stopped for them. Everyone else was telling them to be quiet. That's profound. Everyone else includes the disciples. Shut up, blind guys. We're arguing about who's the greatest here. What are you doing? It's obviously not you. (laughs) I'm just picturing that like a movie. It's so good. Jesus stopped for them. Number two, toward self. Jesus granted the blind men's requests and not James and John's because they appealed to his kingship rather than insisting upon their own. When they said son of David, that was the highest messianic title of kingship they could have given to Jesus. That was his rightful title. We see it throughout scripture. We'll see Jesus explain it in a few chapters from now. Son of David. In the Jewish mind, David. King David. And all the ancient promises that the Messiah, the Savior, the King would come from his line and that it would endure. And when they say Jesus, son of David, they are appealing to his kingship. When James and John and their mama come to him and say, here's what we want you to do for us. Grant us that we may sit on your right and your left. They're appealing to their own little kingship. And to one, Jesus says no. To the other, Jesus says yes. Because as we all know, as it says in James and in 1 Peter 5.5, 5, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Two times the New Testament says that. And it is sort of a, a conflated uh, uh, re-expressing of a couple different texts in the Old Testament. One of them, Psalm 138, where it says, Though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. James and John were functioning from that place of pride. There was a no. There was a distancing. There was an opposition that came from Jesus. The blind guys came from this place of humility, acknowledging his kingship, and and, and demanding not their own rights, but that they would get mercy. James and John were functioning from the place of like, look, we deserve this. We got some rights in this kingdom thing. We've been around for a little while. These blind guys whom everyone was telling to be quiet and go away were just just asking for mercy. God responds to that sort of posturing throughout Scripture. The other thing that we say about that is just got to remind ourselves that Jesus came for our healing, not our promotion. And I think sometimes in life we, we fail to see our desperate need for the cross, how much we need healing and reforming and forgiveness. And we begin to insist upon our rights and our goodness. But the cross just reminds us that Jesus came for our healing, not our promotion, because we were deeply in need, not ever worthy, as we heard from the sermon from Trav last week. Isaiah 53 reminds us, 
But he, prophecy about Jesus, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Because all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Christ went to the cross and came to save us for our healing, not for our promotion. And then the last thing I'll say about that is it's astounding to me that the blind men saw more than the strong men. God reminded his people way back in Deuteronomy, after they were coming out and going into the promised land, he said to them, you need to remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Just a little piece of humble pie. You're coming into the promised land, it's probably going to feel a bit like promotion to you. You're going to go in, you're going to get some land, there's going to be some big grapes, some milk, some honey. You need to remember that you were slaves and I saved you. You need to go back to the cross. So the challenge for you is to think about, okay, so how does that stuff cross-shaped stuff that Jesus talked about. How does that apply? Maybe you just might do it in three areas of your life. My Christian service, my everyday normal life, which is also meant to be Christian mission, and my key relationships. Okay? Don't you guys write stuff down? So think about, I'm going to want us to reflect this week on those things. Where, what, what is the cross calling me to do? How is the cross wanting to f- inform and, and reform my life in some areas of maybe some Christian service? Maybe there's something awry there that needs to be like taken to the cross. My normal life. Who am I pushing down? How am I climbing up? What am I trying to leverage when I ought to have a posture of humility that my boss would see that and think, wow, glory to God. And then in my key relationships, man, those, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road, right? In, in my key relationships, where, where am I called to the cross in those? Where am I called to esteem others as more important than myself? What am I called to give up for the good of others? Again, because as verse 28 said, Jesus about himself, even I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so reflecting on those three areas of our lives. And I, I often... Um, I struggle with my ego every day, but a few years ago, I was struggling with my ego big time. It's because I had lost in some really profound ways in my life, and it, it caused me to falter a bit in my identity. And I had known a lot of success, and now I knew some real pain and some deep, deep failures that will never, ever get better. I was struggling with my ego. And as I was journaling through that one day, the Lord said, Britt, In these things that you're talking about, I'm always calling you to go the way of the cross. So when you're confused, because I was deeply confused by my ego and what to let go and what to hold on to and where to demand my rights and where to surrender them. But when your ego confuses you, once you bring it into the shadow and the light of, into the full picture of the cross, and crucify your ego there. And that was painful, but that was so helpful in the time because I I was given this 
this like real help from the Holy Spirit in light of the cross and the word of God that helped me to realize, okay, now what about this relational decision? What about this life decision is going to hurt my ego the most? I should probably really consider that as being the right course of action. And I will tell you that I never saw it until I got there. Everything went through my ego and what would make my ego better and promote me more and further my cause and my existence. And I'm not saying I'm good at it, man. You know me, I'm not. But that has helped me in my life. Britt, what's going to hurt your ego the most? Let's think about doing that. That's cross-shaped. Lord, help us as your followers to live in the truth of the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for your great love for us and for rescuing us and bringing us into these great truths and this wonderful kingdom. Help us, Lord, faithfully to live out this kingdom life in this world, that we might be your witnesses, that we might experience healing, that we might experience with one another relational wholeness and restoration. Lord, these things are hard. It's easy to talk about the cross. It is hard to live out the implications. We say together that we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Even today as we reflect on our Christian service, our normal workplaces, and our key relationships, help us to see what the cross calls us to do in all of those. Please, Lord. We ask it together in Jesus' name.